And here we are, we're back, another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Hope you all been enjoying the episodes, we've had some strong ones lately, Cody Cannon, Chase Rice, Rob Roberts, Flatline Outfitters, Oklahoma, Fort Cobb, what an experience down there, and then we took a little bit of a road trip north and went through Kansas, through Nebraska, up through Scotts Bluff, and into Wyoming. And here we are, Wyobraska Outfitters, coming at you from the road, the Foul Life Season 14 from Benelli Presents on the Outdoor Channel. Y'all be able to find these episodes starting in July of 2022, exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Flascap. Y'all got to check out Flascap, F-L-A-S-K-A-P. We love them. The best tumbler cup on the market. It's absolutely awesome for boating, beaching, anything that you need when you don't want to worry about carrying glass bottles around. Check out Flascap. And we want to send a huge thank you out to Drew and the entire crew at Flascap because they truly believe, coming from the state of Montana where they manufacture their goods, they believe in the culture of the American hunter, the American outdoorsman, the fisher, the conservationist, the provider. And that's what we're all trying to be. We want to be the ultimate provider. So when you choose your Tumblr Cup, choose a company that absolutely embraces the outdoor lifestyle and supports brands like the Foul Life and several other brands in the outdoor industry. Thank you, Drew, again. Thank you, Flask Cap. Today's episode of the Foul Life podcast is also brought to you by our friends, the Randolph family up at Wyobraska Outfitters. One of our guests today, you've heard him here before on the podcast and seen him on episodes of The Foul Life. <coughs> we filmed in the state of Kansas together. John LaMonico introduced me to J.J. Randolph, his dad, Mike. What a great crew they have up here, right on the Wyoming-Nebraska border. You talk about waterfowl heaven, God's country. Holy smokes, this place is awesome. Thank you, Wyobraska, for unbelievable pits awesome calling scouting just everything that goes into an experience you all you always hear that term the hunt of a lifetime thrown around and I don't want to get all giddy about that because everybody has their own version of what a hunt of a lifetime woulda coulda should have been but these guys put every bit of their passion and love into the art of decoying Canada geese, decoying mallard ducks. And that's why I think every single person listening to this episode of the Fat Life Podcast needs to look into booking a hunt with the Randolph family, JJ and Mike Randolph, Wyobraska Outfitters. Check them out. Get a hunt booked for the 2022-23 season. It's going to be epic. I'm not going to say it's a hunt of a lifetime because I don't know what you consider the hunt of a lifetime. But I'm telling you, if you like to shoot Canada geese at 10 feet, 10 yards, somewhere in that range, mallard ducks in your face, over water, over dry cornfields, mojo spinning, huge decoy spreads. It's awesome. It's Wyoming. It's snow-covered. It's mountains. It's Nebraska. It's unbelievable. So let me introduce some of our guests today. You've heard all, well, two out of the three on the podcast before. I think you've seen the female on an episode of The Foul Life. We might have filmed a little bit at her residence in the great state of Montana, but ladies first. Thank you. How are you, Miss Robin LaMonica? I'm doing very well tonight after a wonderful, excellent meal that you've prepared for us. It was all right. No, it was great. It was better than all right, huh? Like I said, anytime I don't have to cook, I love it. I didn't even have but to clean the dishes. But you still came in there and you stirred the onions. Well, I felt like it, I needed to help you yeah. a little bit. I was your sous chef tonight. I like that. Because I, like I remember at my chef. house when you were with us, I kind of didn't let you take over my kitchen. You know, you were my sous chef. I yeah. tried. Yeah. Her wonderful husband sitting to my right, her left, is the one and only. 
I don't know how to describe Mr. John Lamonaco. Legend, I guess. I guess he's a legend. I mean, he holds SCI records. He's hunted in, I believe, 37. He might correct me on that. 37 different countries, if you can imagine that. He's killed Grand Slams of Sheep. He's killed Marco Polos. He's been after polar bears, grizzly bears, mule deer, elk, pronghorn, whitetail. He's done it all. His game room is absolutely amazing. The way that this man can tell a story, his memory is unbelievable, like a mousetrap. We talked a little bit earlier tonight and just listening to him talk about Joe DiMaggio and, and Martin Luther King and, and John F. Kennedy and where he was at certain times in American history. You're just like, I used to read books about this stuff, but this man lived it. He's, he's in his 87th waterfowl season. John LaMonaco, how are you, my friend? Well, thank you so much for the kind comments. Uh, when I'm out hunting or particularly talking to people that share the passion, I'm a pretty happy camper. And you add uh, my wonderful wife being with me, and I'm a great believer today in uh, that uh, old saying, couples that hunt together stay together. And uh, we've, we've had a very, very pleasant journey for uh, going on 22 years of marriage and uh, during that time I was able to start Robin off on it and I'm really proud of her hunting knowledge and she still has a way to go but uh, uh, she's going to be able to take care of herself in the field that's for sure. She could. She was owning the shotgun today she was hammering them out shooting you and Les. I don't know if she was out shooting me. I was pretty much on target john lamonico thank you for being here and last but not least you've seen him on episodes of the foul life oklahoma kansas south dakota i'm trying to think of some other ones north dakota nevada he's been a lot of places with us he is also an, a life member of safari club international he is in the hall of fame for boone and crockett with the north american 29 which is a big deal to kill all 29 species of big game in North America, including a polar bear, a walrus. I didn't even know you should, could hunt walrus. But I this, am the walrus. I am the walrus. <laughs> the stories of walrus of how these, of the how the locals and the tribes up there take it, and then they dig the hole in the ice. Les will tell this, but they bury the walrus and they let it sit there and age for a year or something, and then come <laughs> well, maybe back. not that long, but long time. <laughs> it's freaking crazy. But Les Nesbitt, he is an unbelievable hunter. The one thing that I wanted to say before Les talks, though, that and when I introduced Mr. John Lamonico, is that after all of those world travels, after all those at Pakistan, all over Russia, all over Canada, South America, I mean, you guys can name all the countries you've hunted in, but you both have an unbelievable passion for waterfowl. And wing shooting. Les, is this fair to say that you have left the mountain chasing sheep or deer to get back to the duck marsh, right? You know, I have. I've been up on a mountain in Nevada by myself hunting mule deer, and the wind would come up, and I'd look down there, and I'd see that wind blowing, and I'm thinking, well, I think I could be on the marsh in about five hours. And I would pack all my stuff up and run down to the bottom of the hill, get in the truck, and drive back to Fallon and start hunting ducks. You know, <laughs> So the wind quit, then I'd go back maybe and climb back up and look for the deer. Why, uh, though? Why do you think, I don't, I don't after know. seeing those 400-inch bulls and those 200-inch mule deer and those 160, 170-inch rams, what is it about a little tiny 
mallard duck or a pintail because john and i have had these discussions why we love the pintail versus the mallard but what what do you think it is that does it for you i think it, maybe it's just i just love to be cold and miserable <laughs> as good an explanation as i could think there's nothing more exciting than laying down on ice water <laughs> well we were not cold and miserable today no we had, today heated we had heaters and you yeah know, but i i think we've maybe progressed a we little had bit sandwiches with, in the yes, blind yes we did you know most of the time when i was not in these yourself. situations right. when i was doing it myself I would actually go out and lay down. But what my... do you think it is about this lifestyle that makes you get giddy about it? I want John to talk on it next, but there's got to be something in your brain because I, we have this saying in our brands that we merely exist in a duck's world because they literally control my life. Like I think about ducks all the time, geese hmm. all the time. We, we, we merely exist in a duck's world. I know that's a little dramatic, but as a duck hunter, you, you're eating up with it. If it's not October and it's August, you're getting the boat ready. If it's not August and it's June, you might be out on the lake and see some honkers <laughs> over there, and you're like, oh, man, I can't wait until October. Right? You know what I'm saying? It's got to be something. I don't know what it is. The one time my wife pointed out really that there was something wrong with me is I had a hunting partner, and we, had, we hunted really hard, kept charts and everything. And the end of the season was, let's say, uh, January 15th or something. And on the 18th or the 20th, we'd be back out there trying to scout because it was a little different so we would know maybe what they were doing in that temperature a year from now. Yeah. And she did point out that that didn't seem normal, and, and I do have to agree. It probably wasn't something that the normal person would do. And not everybody looks at waterfowl hunting, I don't think, with the same kind of passion as that maybe these folks mm. and I do. Uh, or yourself, you know, but there are people that can go out and hunt ducks and think, gee, let's go home and watch a football game instead of staying out there and waiting for the rain to quit or, you know, whatever you're doing that makes you stay out there. I have no idea. Robin, you made a comment today, though, about how, I don't remember how you worded it, but pretty much it was, you got to be there. Yeah, it was about the lottery. Yeah, you have to put in you your time. you got to buy your lottery ticket to yeah, win the lottery. exactly. So you can't just sit on the couch and look at the lottery numbers on the news that night. And, and say, not gosh, have, and I not, wish I'd bought a ticket. Right. So you got to show up uh, if you want to have good days hunting, especially with ducks and geese. You have to go uh, for the average. You can't say, oh, today's a great day. I'm not going to go tomorrow because I had such a good day. You have to, if you have time to go, you've got to go and then the whole experience it's good days and bad days it's you got to have the bad days so you know you're having a good day right big time yeah, yeah. so do you, when you think about today as a whole we tried something in the morning didn't work but it could have came back had a little bit of a transition period and we're right back in the field and we have a what i would consider just i love that kind of goose hunt I love seeing them fall out of a blue sky. Mm -hmm. I like the size of those geese. I like the, I love the vocabulary or the jargon of a goose and us calling back to them. The shooting was good today. Um, the dog work was awesome today. But how would you describe today as a whole, Robin? Well, I guess it was a perfect day. Even though we didn't, in the morning we weren't successful like we wanted to be, but that wasn't our fault. We set the stage and then the actors just didn't show up, right? So, ooh, I like that. Yeah, that was that. I <laughs> they don't have their too. actor's <laughs> guild card. They're fired. But this afternoon, like you said, the sun came out and we could see the cornfields in the distance with a, a little bit of snow on them and the bluffs. And uh, it was, the, the weather was nice. The, it warmed yes, up. It was. And um, the 
geese, they were a little bit, they didn't exactly do what we wanted them to do. We had to really call them a lot, and you all did some great calling. But uh, in the end, we, um, we got our limits, I'd say. Yeah. I think a lot of it, and John, I'm going to ask you this question about, well, we're going to go back to your passion for this. Obviously, there's going to be several stories throughout the next few podcasts we do together. But wind plays a huge role in waterfowl hunting, meaning being able to kind of be that airplane director, you know, that has the sticks out there and you're kind of doing all this stuff. And I know that the podcast audience can't see me unless you're watching YouTube, but you got the two little orange sticks, right? And you can kind of guide them in. And with wind, you can kind of command waterfowl what you want them to do. You can set your spread to where that wind's going to be. But when there's no wind like there was this afternoon and early evening, you're kind of at their mercy to where they're interested but they can do whatever they want. They can light here, they can light over there. They don't really have a rhyme or reason. Is this fair to say? Very true, very true. Uh, we can control and adjust for a lot of things, but it comes down to really thinking like the bird is or trying to figure out what they're doing and why they're doing it. And uh, sometimes you'll find that uh, when they're bucking the sun, uh, they're uh, a lot more cautious because their vision is just like us. When we're looking into the fireball of the sun, we don't see too well, but uh, they are very sensitive to wind. And uh, if you uh, uh, watch one of the tips that I always enjoy is uh, watching some birds that are serious about coming in and seeing how they handle their controls by dropping one leg and you can see that he's going to make a turn. I've seen that several times when the bird is heading right directly into the wind but he kind of wants to go onto another spot. He can't just make a sharp right or a sharp left. He can but without breaking his glide you'll see a foot maybe two, three inches below and he's just playing that just like you would a stick on a plane. So we really have some birds that have beautiful flying skills. And I think that uh, when we're out there as much as we are, we get to really analyze what they're doing and how they're doing. And uh, I'm a great believer in the effectiveness of a call uh, uh, for uh, gaining their initial attention and for giving them confidence when it's time to come in on final. Uh, I understand and subscribe to uh, attracting uh, uh, the ducks from uh, a long range. Uh, that works like a, not a visual flag, but an auditory flag. They hear it and they like it. And then from there, it's up to us to persuade them to make that last commitment commitment and turn and it's kind of like uh, a finesse call and your calling gets more muted gets more accurate and you watch the length of your chuckle and you have uh, a few lonesome hands calls instead of a very very vigorous comeback and all of those factors we all have our uh, own recipes and our own style and I've had people that say well I keep calling until they get in range and I say, take them. And I've had other people say, well, uh, 
I don't say a word if they're heading in my direction. And sometimes both of those statements are true. And sometimes just a short chuckle or a, a lonesome hand quack will turn them and that's what they wanted to hear. So we have a lot of tools at our disposal and uh, knowing how to use them is what makes you a dedicated duck hunter because you learn from trial and error and years and years of doing it that uh, uh, these birds are gonna do different things and we have to adjust. Just like we adjust our lead for a long bird or a dead on kill at 20 yards or something like that. But uh, I think playing the game with the waterfowl is something that we've learned and I'd like to think that after years and years of doing it, uh, we've kind of mastered that. Some days they don't want to play at all, and that's where your weather comes in. But all in all, it's a marvelous game, and uh, I'm just so happy that I had a chance at an early age to be exposed to it because I, I fell in love with the, with the sight of duck hunting, and I've never gotten over it. And I'm, just as happy about today, even though the morning was slow and didn't work out the way we thought. We regrouped and we had a nice, tight, peaceful shoot. Everybody knew what they were doing. Uh, we uh, uh, enjoyed some easy shots and a few hard ones, and that's what makes for a perfect day. And most people got large birds. That's right. <clears throat> Except less. Well, you have to be able to pick out the tender. The tender ones, but, the veal, but the, the, the goose yeah, bill. But that was a solo bird, so you really had no indication of what well, size no, it I was. Well, no, I saw him coming from a long way. And, but and you didn't I, know if he was large I or small. Tapped, I tapped Chad, and he called that particular bird out For of you. It. Yeah, yeah, he did that. Well, we've been, we've been friends for quite a while. <laughs> Do you remember the year you picked up a duck call for the first time? Uh Yes, uh, I do, and uh, it wasn't during my early days because I was uh, mentored by a really, really good, uh, uh, experienced duck hunter. He was virtually a market hunter at the time, and uh, I watched him, and I, I learned a great deal about it, and uh, uh, it was primary pintail country where we were hunting and widgeon. So they used a lot of whistles. They weren't as sophisticated, but there was one called a Murillo, which uh, is like a T-shaped whistle, and you can do a nice widgeon call, and you can do a, a sprig whistle with it. And uh, I thought that was pretty effective, and I went to uh, uh, Stuttgart when I got older, and uh, I... Uh, uh, went into a couple of the stores there, and I was amazed to see the collection of duck calls at the time. Uh, a fellow by the name of Chick Majors and his wife, Sophie Major, and uh, he also had two daughters, and they all independently won championships. Uh, the father, his wife, and his two daughters. and. Uh, she married, uh, uh, and her name became uh, uh, Brenda Peacock. And uh, these people are all listed in the record book. 
And uh, I had a uh, mentor in Stuttgart, Arkansas, by the name of Rex Hancock. And uh, Dr. Hancock was a real character, a nice guy, and he was responsible for saving the cash river bottoms in Arkansas. Uh, the uh, Corps of Engineers wanted to uh, dam that up and make it like a navigable waterway adjacent to the Mississippi. And he fought it tooth and nail, raised a lot of money, uh, got Ducks Unlimited, uh, Delta Waterfowl to back him, and they backed off of uh, commercializing the Cache River bottoms. They were going to cut down the timber, and that today is a very, very major part of uh, uh, the duck world as it uh, exists in Stuttgart. And to answer your question, I went the long way, but I thought it would be interesting. Uh, uh, I had a, a duck call that I said, well, they say you just, you're going to call ducks in the timber, and I had never been in the timber, and uh, I had a, a commercial call, one of the hard rubber black calls, you can probably guess what it was, and I uh, uh, had a fairly decent chuckle with it. I couldn't do a lonesome hen or a long call. And uh, going back to being in the sporting goods store, uh, I was there looking at everything, and this fellow's next to me, and he says, this is the best call everybody uses here. And, you know, not being a guy from uh, the bigger cities, uh, I didn't understand how friendly people could be. And he says, that, that's a good call. If you're going to buy one of those, get one of those. And I said, well, I'm just looking right now and kind of dismissed it. Well, he was still in the store when I was there, and uh, he came by again, and he said, where are you going to be hunting tomorrow? And I said, well, we're working on that now. He says, well, stop working. Why don't, why don't you come with me? He said, I got a hell of a good spot. And uh, he says, you'll enjoy it. And I said, well, that's a good deal. I said, uh, I, do we need to settle on rates? He says, no. I'm just inviting you. He says, I like to see people come to our town. So we really hit it off, and we talked about going out in the morning. And we got out there, and boy, he was a good caller. He was a very good caller, and he was uh, blowing a Chick Major's call. And that was the winner of several national championships for many years. And uh, he said, uh, do you like to call the ducks? And I said, well, I really haven't done much of it. I said, but sometime I use a feed chuckle. And I picked up my call and I said, yeah, I, I like to do this sometime. I did tuck, 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 you know, and I gave a little yodel on it. And he says, oh, geez, let me see that thing. And he looked at it. He says, this ain't gonna work for you. And he flicked it into the water. <laughs> and I said, what the hell? And he says, no, I got something for you. And he reached into his hunting jacket and he pulls out a chick major's call. He says, now you want to practice with this. He says, and we're not going to practice out here. We're going to kill some ducks right now. 
He says, but I'm going to introduce you to Chick tomorrow, and he's going to give you some pointers. Wow. So we had a hell of a nice duck hunt. And, uh, it was what was a, the limit back then? The limit was four birds. Oh, so same as that. It was one of those periods. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was tight, but it was beautiful, typical timber hunting. And uh, the next day we went down, and uh, the shop that Chick had was just an extension of his garage and he had a lathe and he had a lot of different kinds of wood, you know, cocobolo and cypress and whatnot, and pretty calls, but he had, you know, what he called meat and potato calls. And at the time they were fairly expensive, you know, $50, which is a pretty good price then. And uh, he uh, said, well, look, he says, you're gonna have to do a lot of practicing and he said, I want you to listen to three or four calls that I do and try to really think of it as music. And then you practice it. And then let's talk on the telephone. And I'm going to tell you <coughs> what I think of your progress. Well, gee, we, we did that. And uh, I listened to him and listened to him. And boy, he said, you hear the way I'm doing that lonesome hand? And he says, I'm saying a word in my mind like squank, squank, you know, and he says, that's just the way you're going to want to feel it. And uh, he talked about the count on a long call, you know, or a hail call and a comeback call. Uh, and he gave me a real nice tutoring on the whole thing. Well, I was in San Francisco at the time and I was uh, driving 45 minutes each way to to uh, my job in the uh, in the aluminum and glass business, and uh, I would practice in the car. I guess that's why my hearing is so out of tune now. Geez, I was blowing my brains out in that car. <laughs> and people would drive up to me and they would be looking at me. What the hell is this guy doing? I'm over there. Eh, eh, oh, you got a pipe <laughs> or something. Then <laughs> I did that and uh, I got. Uh, uh, fairly good at it and I went back the next year and Chick said listen you keep practicing you got it down well we had the uh, Greenbrier the Brittingham family owned it completely at the time and uh, we were hunting there every three days out of the week you know and we rested and it was called the old Winchester <coughs> Olin Matheson owned that and uh, we had some of the very best duck hunting in Arkansas. And we had uh, uh, a head guide, and a lot of the local guys would come out there to guide when it was kind of commercial. Well, we were a family group, just friends and family, so we only needed a couple of guides to put out decoys and drive the boats. And we were breaking into the place, and. Uh, uh, these guys really had all the power, and they got to be very dictatorial. You know, they were telling us uh, not what they suggested. They were telling us what to do, you know. You get behind that tree over there and don't show your face, you know. Well, my, my owner didn't respond well <coughs> to that kind of treatment, and he told me one day, he says, you know, these are nice guys, he says, but... We don't need anybody in here to tell us how to shoot ducks. And he said, uh, uh, let's 
let's get rid of these guys. And so I said, well, I said, uh, uh, who's going to be doing the calling? He said, well, you're, you, you sound pretty good. <laughs> and so I said, well, okay. And, you know, I was working with a lot of birds, uh, you know, and all that acreage of prime, prime hunting. And uh, working with a lot of birds gives you a lot of confidence. And I found out what I was doing wrong. And I said to myself, gosh, I blew those guys right out of the hole. That was too loud. Uh, I should have been slower. And I critiqued myself. And uh, with uh, Rex Hancock and uh, Chick Majors tutoring me, they said, uh, you ought to go into the uh, contest. And I said, oh, geez. I said, uh, these guys uh, are all real pros. And uh, he said, we'll go in and try. He says, you got to win. Texas State, so uh, I showed up and there were uh, four of us representing Texas. I was sponsored by the Dallas Ducks Unlimited, and they said, well, you know, we'll just say that you're our choice, so we don't have anybody else. So I went up there, and my competition uh, was uh, uh, pretty interesting, and uh, the competition was a guy that uh, uh, made uh, uh, the Jensen call that was uh, very good. And uh, we uh, narrowed this thing down and we eliminated uh, two other guys and it was he and I. And I was pretty intimidated because here's a guy that makes duck calls for a living. And uh, we uh, had a, a trial deal. There were three judges and I got all three of the votes, so I ended up representing Texas and uh, got into the finals, and uh, I took a third in the, uh, in the world's uh, duck call. You took a third place? Uh, yeah, it's the in second runner-up in the world duck. Yeah, it's in, in the book. Going. It's a picture oh, of well, me. Well, then you were the... better than average. Well, you got to be good to well, place in the yeah, top three. I did that, but, uh, you know, I've... As you know, I've written a couple of books, and one of the motivations for writing the books was to, you know, share the passion, and it appeals, obviously, to people, guys like yourself and Les, that also live this passion. But uh, there's nothing worse than someone telling you they've done something, and they haven't done that. And if I tell you... Well, you know, I had a limit of 10 bulls sprig when that was doing every day for two weeks. I've got pictures to back it up. <laughs> and there is a picture in the book. As a matter of fact, it's one of three black and white photos because they're so old. We didn't have colored photos in those days. But there's a picture of me taken in the, the Stuttgart uh, uh, news on the front page. What and, year was that? Uh, Nineteen sixty-one. Uh, earlier than that, probably fifty-eight. I think. Oh, we'll have to look at the picture. But uh, fifty-eight. Uh, ten bulls uh, But that's uh, you know, ten-point ducks, and I said I'm going to do that every day, and I took all of Christmas vacation and for my birthday, which is usually celebrated 
on the 25th with a big cake and a new set of presents. I said, you know what I want for my birthday? I want to be able to miss it and to go over to Los Banos and uh, shoot some ducks over there. And I was on this secret deal of getting the bull sprig on every hunt there. And, uh, the it, grasslands, it, you went from San Francisco over to Los Banos. Yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, then I lived on the Monterey Peninsula. It was only a two-hour drive. The other way, it was a three-hour drive. That's when gasoline was 18 cents a gallon. Oh, wow. Yeah. That'd be nice So today. it's a lot of ancient history, but uh, I, I was very pleased with it. And I want you to look in the book. As a matter of fact, I've got a, a book or two for less, and uh, I want you to look at that picture. You know, when you write a book, it's a lot like Playboy. Most of the people want to just see the pictures. <laughs> but there, there are a lot of good stories. I only read the there. jokes. Pardon? I look at the jokes. Uh, sure. Yeah. Les, you, you hear John talk about his passion, and a lot of that was about calling. Um, would you say your passion is more suited for the dog part of the hunt? I, yes. I, dogs have always been a big part of it because I've always liked training dogs, and I've always been involved in dog trials. <clears throat> my, my whole family and most of my friends are related around dog, dogs, dog trials, and, and waterfowl hunting. So the the dog work has always been a real big part of mine. Uh, <clears throat> just like you get passion for for the calling or whatever, and and I would do the same thing with dogs. And uh, people go buy a puppy and train it, and sometimes I would go buy the whole litter. I'd buy all eight or nine dogs <laughs> in the litter, take it back and train them, and. I was not a great trainer. My son ended up being a good trainer, but you know, I would keep what I thought was best and either sell the other ones off or something. So the the dog work has always been a big part of it for me. And I, I, that's why I like working over water more than, than dry ground. But um, it's a big part. And it's a big part of, of waterfowl hunting, I think. Oh, absolutely. The, the Do you remember work. the year you had your first duck dog? What yeah, I was, I was, uh, probably 10 years old and I got a Springer Spaniel when I lived in, and I didn't know how to train dogs, but I worked really hard on, you know, working him. And then I wasn't as smart as I thought because I went from there to a Chesapeake. Ooh. <laughs> so. Ooh. Tough guys. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, a little tougher to train. It's been years since I've seen a Chesapeake now that you just brought that up. I haven't seen a Chesapeake in probably seven or eight seasons. Do you remember the last time you yeah. saw one with a hunter? Long ago. Long Do you remember ago. the last time you saw one? Well, the last was, I had one probably 25 years ago. Was the last Do you one. remember the last time you actually like saw a hunter with a Chessie though? I haven't seen one forever. You know, I have seen some. And only because I always noticed Chesapeake because I always really liked them just because they could really handle cold water so well. <clears throat> Very much more difficult to train than Labrador. It's just a totally different concept you got to use to train most of them. Uh, you can't force them into anything like you can Labrador. You know, I mean, you can try and you can get bit too. <laughs> but that was that was always one of the big things for me was the, was the dog work. I want to ask you something. I'm gonna, I, I have some thoughts with Robin, Miss Robin too, because her insights really cool to know you know like her perspective from that sorry about oh. that from her from the blind today but talk to me real quick in, in regards to dogs and duck hunting 
I had a collar on Axel today. I didn't have to use it. He knows it through training of being conditioned with a collar. The wrap that collars get is a big faux pas for me of the discipline, the disciplinary actions on a dog. People think, oh, he's a dog, he's cute, she's so cute and cuddly. These are conservation tools, first of all, in my opinion, and they have to be well-mannered. They have to be gentlemen. They have to be very well-mannered females. They don't just jump up on your lap when they feel like they can or jump up on your no. couch or run into your daughter's knee when they think that they need to, you know, take out somebody because they don't have any, you know, any discipline. There's a lot of things that go into having a neat dog. We call them neat dogs, okay? In the South, I learned that. That's a neat dog. Well, what's a neat dog? Well, that's a neat dog. He's well-disciplined. She's well-mannered. They're, they, they understand where place is and kennel is and they, they know when the birds are flying they they alert you before you even know the birds are around you there's a lot that goes into having a neat dog but in your opinion Les, in all of your years of training dogs and i know that your son kirk is a very qualified trainer has some of the top dogs in the country as we speak right now he's won the nationals he's won the grand he's a stud trainer is it okay to train a dog with a with an electronic call oh absolutely absolutely people when Collar started, Rex Carr, there was a trainer, Rex Carr, who was a premier dog trainer. He kind of developed the use of the electric collar. When the elect, pri just prior to electric collar as we know it today, they would take cattle prods and they would have wire soldered on them, take them out with a long wire and, and a collar on the dog, and they'd zap them off a, a cattle prod before they developed the collar. And those were, cattle prods are a little more severe. But, um, Collars done properly, the dog learns how to accept them, and if the person uses a little bit of sense, and if you don't use them with a rage of temper, just, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, or I'm mad at you. But if they're done properly, uh, it's, it, it, it progresses the dog's training ability several years. I mean, what, what may take you by show and tell and show and tell three or four or five years to get a dog really, really good, if you use a collar on him and done right, like with a pro or somebody, you can have, instead of waiting five years to have a dog like that, he'll probably be three years old and he'll just like uh, 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 Axel. Uh, so it progresses, it progresses the, the, the dog's longevity as a good hunting dog. The sooner he learns, mm -hmm. the better he's going to be for a longer length of time. And you don't, you don't have to be so severe on the dog. As, as you do without a collar, you know, without a collar, you're using whips. They would shoot, uh, shoot them with birdshot in the butt, which was a common thing. Oh, mm. You know, they stand behind them and the dog would break. They'd shoot him in the butt with birdshot, you know, so, and that was very common. And, and at one time they were literally shooting dogs with 12 gauge shotguns and they'd get out there so far, wouldn't respond to a whistle and they'd shoot them with a shotgun with, uh, some Jeez. kind of eights or, or, or something. And you, I have friends that are vets, and they would handle dogs from dog trainers and stuff. And they say, you X-ray them, you can see BBs all through their butt. Mm. And that was, and then this is <clears throat> 25 years ago when they were just developing collar. So it eliminated all, it eliminated the shots and the, you know. So the collars is a good, it's a good tool. It's a very good tool. And the collars improve too now. I mean, they're not as severe, you have different, uh, severities of, of uh, uh, the, the shock that they get. And they have good dog modes on them, 
where they just get a sound and stuff. So the collar is a very good thing. And a dog <coughs> learns by repetition. And they learn, <coughs> a dog's being trained every minute that you're around him. Whether you, he, he does something wrong and you don't tell him, he's learned to do something wrong. So, you, you know, you get around, I get around my son with the what, what dog that he's playing on. And he gets all over me. Well, why did you, and all I want to do is let the dog watch TV with me. And, you know, and it has to do this and it has to do that. And they're, when they're working those dogs in that caliber of dog, and they let them out of the truck. I mean, they literally, they don't, they don't urinate or anything until they're told to. Yeah. And they're very dirty. So you have a dog, um, let's compare it to, <clears throat> excuse me, a shotgun. You can have the best shotgun in the world. I love Benelli. But you don't put somebody that's proficient with a shotgun behind that Benelli. That Benelli might not perform like a Benelli suited too. So absolutely, critique me for a second. Watch me <laughs> over the last two years because I tell people all the time. I'm like, Axel is an unbelievable dog. I'm just a very below average handler. the The handler is everything when it comes to taking a dog that has the talent and the go. Like Axel's got that button. You turn that mm -hmm. switch, and Axel's a machine. He'll come in here and lay by me and cuddle with me and spoon with me, and he's the greatest companion in the world. But when it's go time, he's a hunter. But if you're not, if you don't have the handler part of this down, you're doing that dog an injustice. So critique me a little bit on my handling because you gave me some compliments in Oklahoma, but you also gave me some instruction and some improvements or different things that I could work on. And and that's true. You know, you you got to work as a team with the dog, and you got to you have to know how the dog was trained you know you got a, a pro or, or, or a really qualified amateur that's running a dog and, and knows all the different quirks and how to do this and that uh, just like I when you were running and, and I mentioned to you Chad when you hit the whistle to give him a handle uh, make sure he gets his butt on the ground don't don't blow the whistle have him turn around and look at me and all that he does that everything fine but you're just he's getting loose he just he's just getting loose he you want to keep him tight doing what he's supposed to do how he was trained and when he was being trained when brad is a very good trainer when he was being trained when brad blew the whistle that dog sat down before he got a handle and then if you and it, hunting is a different situation because everything's a lot of things going on and you blow the whistle and he turns around and he's still standing and all of a sudden you when he took a good catch but eventually He's gonna, you're gonna lose some of that control at him, and that he's gonna, not gonna take the straight lines and the angle backs, and and even he takes really good angle backs and stuff now, but he, they can get, they can get loose. Mm. So as a whole, you think that there's an improvement there that I've done to where I can, I'm handling him better, or be, or where, what is the? You're handling him a lot better than you were six months ago when we were going to the park. We were working together. Like yeah, that. yeah. You, you've improved considerably. There, and, but like I said, there's a. Have difference. you been wearing the collar as well? <laughs> I would. I need to sometimes. <laughs> I feel like I should wear it all it, the time. It, running a dog is—it's just something you learn to do, and uh, it's such a huge part of the you game. You got to be so consistent with doing it the same way every time, and you're not going to do it the same way every time. You know, you're going to something's going to excite you. You need to get the bird. Dog and how back many in. words does a dog know? You know, 
I don't know how is it many, the tone but they're only the word? a lot of its tone. Mm-hmm. A lot of its tone. Because sometimes I hear somebody say, "Get back in here, you bad dog." They you don't know? understand no, that. No, yeah, just a one syllable. Uh, the particular dog I have, he's a great big yellow lab, and he's he's a good dog. He's been trained a lot, but with him, like when Chad sets him down, his dog down is going to send him on a blind. He he'll yell back to him loud. And with my dog, as big as he is, I have to say it very calm to him. I have to say it back. Mm. If I say it too loud, he gets nervous. He he just just because he's a big dog doesn't he's mm. little he's a little weak in 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 that area. He doesn't like punishment too much. Responds good, but if I yell back too loud, he'll go out and do what they call pop. He'll run out there seventy five yards and turn around and look at me, thinking he's done Ooh. something wrong. You know, and and those are just. And if you look at Axel, you know, he gives him a back and he doesn't, like I say, he doesn't pop. He, he keeps running a line and keeps going out there. So, you know, it's, it's just a matter of, it's just like going down and shooting trap. It's, it's my favorite part of the game now. It used to be calling. Calling was huge to me, and it still is. But, man, that being able to say, oh, have a dog fun. do the things that I've seen Axel do in a 600-yard blind retrieve and bring a bird back, you're just like, It's very impressive, and uh, gosh, uh, uh, Les, I have to tell you, your comments really ring a bell with me because uh, that's an area where I haven't had uh, as much experience as a lot of people. Uh, I really enjoy a a well-trained dog, and I've had a couple of them that were just dandies, but our lifestyle is such that it's very difficult for us to be tied down with a dog, you know, we travel. Yeah, a we lot. just got rid of the kids. Why would we want yeah. a dog? So it's a big thing. But uh, my two cents on uh, uh, everything you said that was very helpful is uh, I think the e collar is tremendous because I had two dogs that were uh, trained with that, and uh, I found that as time went on, I used it less and less. Yeah. And when I physically strapped the collar on his neck, it was a different animal. There was no, here's a lovable family dog. When I put the collar on, there was no petting. There was no softness, no snuggling up to my leg. It was, what are we doing, boss? It's time to go to work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I didn't baby him, but Robin asked how many words I said, all of this superfluous thing. If you don't do that, there's not going to be any tree. Well, this is stupidity. And uh, I just found that the presence of the e-collar was a big thing. And uh, you also talked about a dog getting loose. And that's the first time I heard that terminology. But uh, uh, that's what happens if you don't regularly enforce it. And... uh, uh, they get sloppy, and all of a sudden he wants to, instead of swimming on a direct line, he wants to hit the bank. Yeah, exactly. That's easier. Exactly. And uh, it's uh, uh, really, I can see where that part of it uh, really uh, rules your interest it, in the ducks. It does, and I've always, I've always been a dog guy, so that's oh yeah, probably one of the big reasons I enjoyed duck hunting so oh, much yeah. was to, you, you train in all summer. So in, in theory, you're hunting ducks all summer because you're out training your dog. And we would have 
pens full of uh, ducks in, in, in my house, and we'd have a little pond for and we'd go catch them. And my wife was really good about it, and I'd be working, and she'd catch the ducks, and we'd meet every night for six days a week, the whole summer long, just training dogs and running field trials, which I was never any good at, but uh, it, it's just like anything else you do. If you want to be good at it, then you do a lot of it. Very rewarding, and yeah. uh, I appreciated your comments, and I, I picked up several good <laughs> points. What are the sensations that turn you on about waterfowl? You're in the blind. You have a gun. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Robin. Like, <laughs> what, what, you hear the dog talk. You hear the calling talk. You, you were making sandwiches in the blind. You have the birds working. You have the, the sights, the sounds, the smells, everything that goes into it. You, you're kind of new to it. You've been hunting waterfowl for what? Well, just since I've married John, so, so about 20, 21 years. So 21 years, but, yeah. you, but you didn't grow up doing no, this. No, my dad's a doctor. Why did you? Da guns are dangerous. <laughs> yeah, they, but what, what is it that you love about it? Why do you? Well, I, I originally said, well, you know, I've married this man. He's a hunter. I will go with him and try it out and see what, why he likes it so much, why he's so passionate about it. And I wanted to be with him when he was the happiest. And he was really happy in the blind and... Uh, when he made a good shot and calling and all that and after a while you you just pick up things uh, subliminally or just kind of like falling asleep on a textbook you know it all goes into your head and um what i like about the day-to-day -day or just being in the blind is being with john i don't know how it would be if i was in a duck blind without john because we're together we're a team where he goes i go and um, we just work well together. He sometimes has to go in timeout because he takes my bird, but he's learning. So I said, you know, John, if you want me to go hunting with you, you're going to have to let me shoot a few birds, you know? So, um, John, give us a I've really improved, you know, when I realized how important that was. We were down in Argentina, and uh, they would say, uh, well, Mr. John, uh, where do you want to shoot? And I said, uh, uh, well, where are we going to put uh, my wife, mi senora? And he says, oh, well, whatever she wants. Wherever. <laughs> and so I said, uh, well, honey, they want to know where you're going to go. And uh, uh, this is a good spot here. They'll be coming over these trees. And if you go over to this spot, the birds are going to be coming off the mountain. They'll be flying faster. There's more pass shooting. She says, well, where are you going to go? And I said, well, I'm going to go. She says, I'll go there. <laughs> so she got, she got Well, on. I realize, you know, they're going to put the, the paying man in the best spot. And the wife, you know, is going to get second choice. So I said, well, I'll just go where they were going to put John, right? <laughs> but she had, she had I never. I needed every advantage. Yeah, she that. had never shot a BB gun before. Just never. And her father and mother are very conservative and. You know, they've had no exposure with guns or the outdoors or killing anything. You know? I, I would say that when I have a hand, uh, a shotgun in my hand, I feel very comfortable. You know, oh, you look comfortable. You're <laughs> watching the way the bird was flying, I would say oh, yes. pretty comfortable. <clears throat> but um, your question was, what makes the being in the duck blind so, so special? I think I answered that right. Being with John and and his passion, and um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that you know. When we got married, I was passionate about duck hunting, 
you know, going out. But now with the cute clothes and everything, and I'm not actually so cold anymore. And that hand warmer that you let me borrow today, Band, because and, that's but, the worst thing in the world to have cold oh, hands and them. cold toes. You you just can't be comfortable. You can't be happy even when you're shooting lots of birds if you're cold. So, do you you've had an unbelievable hunt in Turkey this year for a big ram? Um, it was a Bazor ibex. Bazor ibex. Yes, a goat. It's a goat. Yes. Actually. Um, are you partial to waterfowl hunting? You've, you've killed some big game animals with John. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer waterfowl hunting? Is it your favorite, or what is your favorite? I like anything that's sportive because, I, you know, I'm very sportive doing marathons, triathlons, Pilates, yada, yada. And um, anything that if I'm going to exert myself, I don't like to just go up a mountain and sit for hours in glass. You know, that's, that's really not my thing but if I can go up the mountain and shoot the animal and then walk down with the animal you know and get a good workout um but anyway I I do prefer I guess birds you know I just feel like like we were talking earlier they're 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 more wild you know they're they're probably the wildest thing we've got going right now that we could um shoot because you know some animals are behind the fence now and they're they've got these huge horns and they're not really considered wild anymore. And then even going and shooting a, a deer over a, a, some grain or a, in a deer stand, that to me doesn't seem, that's not my cup of tea. You know, so I'm, I guess I'm more adventuresome that way. And um, there's the chance that you can miss when you're shooting a dove uh, or a, a duck. And that's, uh, that's what keeps us coming back is that we missed. If we got it, like John says, if we got it all the time, we wouldn't, we just throw away the gun. We don't need to do that anymore. So, what what is it about this place that turns you on, John? You've you've hunted Argentina many times, Mexico, mm-hmm. Russia, Canada. You used to have an unbelievable place on the Peace River in northern Alberta. Why why Nebraska Outfitters? Why Jason Randolph and his dad Mike? What what is it about this place that that gets you going? Well, first of all, you have to have a good feeling right from the start. If you go in and you say, well gee, I really don't care to be around this outfitter too much. He's a heavy drinker. He uh, is incessantly smoking in every room of the house, but he's got good hunting. Well, you could put up with it, but uh, in uh, our case, uh, because I want Robin to always have a a good experience, we we try to pick out the very best places and uh, from a personality standpoint, uh, uh, both uh, Jason and his father, uh, Mike, uh, they're high caliber people. They're intelligent. They're very, very pleasant, very efficient. And, uh, you know, when we say no two days are ever alike, that's so true. Uh, We had a slow morning. We had a nifty afternoon. But by and large, the times that I've been here, uh, have been very outstanding. I like the fact that there's a preponderance of large geese. And you know, it, it causes me to digress for a minute and uh, say that uh, people have said, gosh, you must really hate these ducks. On the contrary, I had an aviary with 25 or 30 species and a full-time caretaker behind a, a 
cyclone fence plastic covered pond and I had all these animals in there. I fed over a hundred Canada's 365 a year every single day and I never shot a bird on the ranch because they were pets and uh, I really loved the birds and you heard Robin say uh, to Jason and once to use it give John that goose he wants to pet it a while and I took a picture of you holding it up you know, they're a beautiful thing oh they're man. a beautiful thing it's like a pheasant hell we go out and uh, shoot a load of pheasants every time we shoot one he said gee look at the tail on that bird or look at the head on it look at this iridescence and when I was a small kid still in school uh, they had show and tell and one time I brought in the head of the Drake Mallard <laughs> Drake hen and a pintail and it was a Catholic school so the nuns were very easy to shock and they said John these animals are dead and I said oh yes sister they're dead <laughs> and you know how it is if you cut the necks clean and there's no blood and you hold them by the beak and there's no blood on the beak and you've smoothed down all the feathers it just looks like a glove and I think it's a beautiful sight and uh, some of my pet peeves in the field is uh, I don't like people that uh, you invite that want to take charge of the hunt and tell you everything uh, where to put the decoys, when to call, when to start shooting, when to quit, when to go. I don't care for that. I believe there should be one person running the show. And when we sign up for an outfitter, be it you or uh, Grant Kuypers or whoever it is, that's the man. That's the man. And we go with that. And I think it's... Uh, uh, just such a nice thing to enjoy these birds for what they are and really I have had a lot of people that say geez we have to take pictures and I like to take a lot of pictures and we take some pretty good ones for not being professionals but the people are missing out on something by displaying and looking at the beauty of these birds and it kind of hacks me off because <laughs> That's the same person that calls him. Hey, have you got any pictures that we took up there? And well, I'm not going to display my fingers, but I don't like to send them a picture. I said, that's, that's the guy that was telling me, Jesus, let's get our butts out of here. I want some pancakes. I don't like that. So uh, hmm. uh, Robin really indulges me. And all it takes me is 15 minutes to set up he likes nice to touch the birds about three times each just yeah. so oh, you know yeah. for tomorrow so I'm a, I guess I'm a touchy-feely guy <laughs> that's okay but uh, I really like the birds I like it I wish to hell they could get up and fly away and we do it again and if you got them ten times then I guess you could X them out but uh, uh, I truly enjoy every part of this waterfowling experience I love to watch the birds work and maneuver. I like to have them respond to the call. One of my favorites is when you uh, 
call it a flock when they're on about the third level and one of those hands is turning the corner and she just yeah yeah just that's all she wanted to exert with I'm coming in yeah see I see all that stuff and it just really turns my crank there's no other word for it it just really turns me I like to watch other people shoot I remember uh, the first time my mentor uh, had me. He said, well, I want you to watch me a while while I'm shooting these doves. And uh, gee, I saw him make a, a double. Pat, pat. And I said, oh, man. I said, Mr. Bruno, you got them both. He said, oh, yeah, sometimes they're flying right. You can get three of them. And that's the way I grew up. And uh, when he first put me in the blind, it was a steel barrel blind. And he said, uh, now just try to shoot green heads. That's the way I was brought up. He says, and uh, he says, let them come down. He says, when you can see their feet, you see that orange and that ring around their neck, they're close enough to shoot. And I had a 410 topper. I think they cost $26 at the time. And I had this deal with two and a half inch shells. And you know, I, I just, Love the beauty of that, and uh, I never got over it watching a good wing shooter, how he handled the birds, how he handled his dog, how he did the decoys, and boy, you know, he'd be on me. Now look, when you roll up the strings, this is before, you know, fast weights and all that stuff, you gotta do it tight, because in the morning you get out here in the dark, you're going to have a ball of string and you're going to miss some good shooting. So I've had great mentoring and I, I was a serious pupil, much like Robin. Well, I feel like I've gotten to shoot with the best, you know. And Thank so, you, as of today. Yes, thank you, Chad. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for that. And then uh, there's John LaMonico. <laughs> no, but he, you know, being out with him, he's uh, really taught me the... Um, finesse of it you know you don't just go out and and bang at a bird you talk to them and um so it's spotting them identifying them Mm -hmm. now she can tell you says boy those had a slower wing beat she says i those are bigger geese they're not little little ones she (laughs) spots them well you're not going to forget that little little goose that i harvested for you guys spotting as many birds as anybody you know says boy here's a big bunch at two o'clock and she picked all of this up, and when she first went to Argentina, she was ready to hang it up. Mm-hmm. She says, I'm not hitting them. And uh, we had a guy that shot 2,000 birds on one side of her, and she said, gee, he's getting every bird. And I said, well, honey, he owns the outfit, and he, he says he likes to shoot 100 birds in the morning and 100 birds in the afternoon every day just to keep sharp. And she was there and said, well, I'm just not very good at it. And we critiqued her. And you know, it's kind of like when you teach somebody how to drive, and uh, uh, particularly some women, if you say, well, you're letting the clutch out too fast. Well, he took it as an insult. They said, I did not. I'm not doing that. Boy, I told her, I said, you're admiring your work. You're swinging and you're looking at it and you're shooting right over the top of them. And she says, you know, I think that's what I'm doing. And boy, with that kind of an attitude, within a week, within a week, she was uh, 
shooting a lot of birds. It started out, I got 25 this morning. I got 50 this afternoon. Geez, I'm trying to get 100 tomorrow. And she's gotten several days of 1,000 birds mm -hmm. in Argentina. Our shell bill for uh, uh, two <laughs> weeks is like 5,200 bucks. So uh, uh, that's what we do. It's sportive, and, and though. Why wouldn't you? It's very sportive. I love Argentina. You know what's kind of cool about waterfowling? I was just thinking about because you all may mention today that you're going to go to Mexico soon. We're, we were in Oklahoma the last 10 days, and then we came north to Wyoming. <clears throat> To freaking Wyoming, the land of Chris Ledoux and Cheyenne Frontier Days and Rodeo and That's the great. Continental Divide. And we're, we're hunting ducks and geese here, right? Y'all are going south. We came north. There's just so much about waterfowling that turns me on. And I'm not saying that you couldn't find this. And maybe you do follow the white-tailed deer. And you go to Kansas. Then you go to Missouri. Then you go to Iowa. And then you go to Pike County, Illinois, or whatever you do. But there's something to be said that you could be hunting a mallard here today and then go to Oklahoma tomorrow and have a chance of hunting that same mallard. That's right. That same exact mallard. Because they're wild. They're wild. And, you, and you're going to go to Mexico and be looking at pintails and redheads that you could have been hunting in Alberta That's to right. California to Texas to Louisiana. All of these states that might have a redhead or a, or a pintail you know, prolific in them. That's what's really cool about waterfowling to me is you just never have an idea of what you're going to encounter. I would have thought, well, why would I go to Wyoming after Oklahoma? Uh, there's a reason why I'm south, because all those birds from Wyoming and Montana are down here. No, that's not the case. There's a lot of birds up here. And it's that's that's kind of like a, a really cool um, ideology to me is that you just never know what you're going to get. And that's what, you know, what Miss Robin said today is like, you got to go. You got to, if you're going to play the lottery, you got to get off your ass and go buy a ticket. Because you're going to sooner or later watch the news that night and go, dang it, I wish I would have bought a ticket. And if you guys go tomorrow, and I know that I'm taking the morning off because I'm going to let my brother Clay host tomorrow, you're going to come back and you're going to be like, oh my God, they were You should have seen it today. You should have seen it today. And that's that, what they call FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. And waterfowling is the ultimate FOMO. That the ultimate true. FOMO. You could be like, should I go? It's gonna might not be perfect. It's not gonna be wind blown. It's it's not gonna be sunny today. And then you come back and you're like, oh my god, this group of teal came in and they gave it up and we killed 14 of them and four of them were banded. And you got, I mean, that's the cool oh. part about hunting, right? Oh, it's it's exciting and we're all very fortunate that we've had the opportunity to live this life mm -hmm. uh this is a big thing it's it's not, not for, for everyone everybody everybody, everybody. yeah we're on everybody the... that's one of our other podcasts <laughs> john's been on that podcast oh yes boy yes. let's talk about that real quick john when we first met i made you a a mallard duck or a can i can't remember if it was duck or goose but i made you a stroganoff and that stroganoff oh, recipe yes. is in that is a recipe from my good friends brad forsyth and jim ray California Nevada team and it's in the new provider cookbook but I made you that stroganoff in in, uh, in Kansas that night mm -hmm. yes and I put the green I put this the, the green onions on top of it and I did all the the, the yeah, you gave me a plate about this big yeah, and that high you were hungry you were hungry but well let's end this podcast because we are going to come back tomorrow with part two but let's talk about we'll start with less wild game is awesome to eat 
to cook. The I always talk about Ted Williams, and I know that I'm going to throw people off. Like, why is he talking about baseball now? But Ted Williams, when I was growing up, um, he was way, obviously, he was way before my time, but he had a book called The Science of Hitting. And chapter four in that book was called Visualization. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned at an early age to visualize. I would visualize everything in my life, whether it was when I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to get my stocking and I know that there's going to be a Michael Jackson thriller cassette in it. And this was like 1982 or 83. I remember visualizing that. I was like, I'm going to get Michael Jackson. Please nobody write in and say, oh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's the king of pop, whatever. But I would visualize things. If I was in the on-deck circle, I'd be like, this guy's going to throw me a slider on the inside part of the play, or he's going to go away from me. I'm going to have to sit back, Mm -hmm. let the ball get deep. I would visualize everything. And in waterfowling, hunting, whatever, you have a blank canvas. And you could throw all these paints, all these oils at that canvas and create the roost is here, the day loaf's here, our decoy spread's here, our ground blinds are here, our dog blinds here, our calling's this, our flagging's this, it's gonna be sunny, it's gonna be overcast, low ceiling, high ceiling, no ceiling, it's gonna be, there's all these visualization processes that you go through the night before. If they do this, I'm gonna do this. If they say this, I'm gonna say this back to them. That's what I love about waterfowl hunting. Then to take it a step further, I start visualizing as the hunt goes on, I'm like, man, we're stacking up the geese. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do this recipe. I start to visualize. <laughs> I started to visualize tonight's dinner when I was in the blind of night. Granted, it wasn't all wild game, but I was like, I got all this food given to me by my Cajun friends for, through duck hunting. Uh-huh. The common denominator, again, is duck hunting. I'm like, I'm going to do this with the boudin. I'm going to do this with the sausage. I'm going to do this with the da-da-da-da-da. So visual- visualization has become a huge part of my waterfowling process, whether it's dog work, calling, response, scouting, decoy setup, concealment, weather, forecasting, all of that that goes into it. And then I take it a step further of, now as the hunt comes to a close, I'm like, I wonder how I could prepare this geese to where everybody's like, wow, that was worth coming hunt because we got, we're providers, we eat this stuff. And Canada goose has got a bad rap in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I can make Canada goose taste unbelievable. Mm. I do it all the, all the time. Like that whole freezer is full of Canada goose right now that we got in Oklahoma and we processed all of it with a meat grinder and make, make you know, meet your maker. It's called meet your maker and it's a big grinding system and we, we put pork fat with it and we use it for gravies and spaghetti sauces and all kinds mm, of things. Can I make but, ragu with it? Ragu, biscuits Yum. and gravy, whatever. I made a spaghetti sauce the other night in Oklahoma that was unbelievable. It was a, it was a, uh, like a marinara meat sauce. It was a red sauce with, I took fresh basil and garlic and olive oil and tomatoes. And I, I spent all day cooking the sauce and it turned out awesome. Well, I think we owe it to the animals that gave their lives for us. So you visualize like, how could I take this meat and make it something unbelievable? And that's what I like to try to do. So when you, when we start talking about like, you know, the, the end process and what we're going to do tomorrow, we're going to cook mallard ducks tomorrow. You love to eat wild game. You both love to eat mm-hmm. wild game. Do you get off on that whole circle, that whole process of sustainability of farming, scouting? Because the farming is important, right? Yeah. yeah. Hunter, you know, farmers are growing these crops that these birds are eating on. Not just the birds, but the coyotes and the white-tailed deer and the turkeys. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, this hunter shows up on his porch. Hey, sir, do you mind if I hunt your cornfield? There's some Canada geese in there. Now this human being goes out there, kills this Canada goose that's been eating this corn that this human being planted. And now this human being is taking this goose's life and skinning that goose out with the skin on or whatever 
and cooking that Canada goose to feed his friends and family or her friends and family. And it's sustainability 360 degrees. That's the coolest freaking lifestyle that you could possibly and live. And it's organic. Organic as heck. It's sustainability, right? Like, is there anything cooler less than that whole no. process? No, there's nothing. I mean, <clears throat> you know as well as I do, that's all I eat is wild game. <clears throat> well, unless, <clears throat> excuse me, unless a year like this last year where I didn't get any tags and et cetera. But uh, all, I, all I ate was elk and uh, white-tailed deer and, and waterfowl. And that was 85% of my diet. Well, and salmon and halibut when I'd go to Alaska. And that's been 85, 90% of my diet for years. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't buy food at the stores, speak other than vegetables. And I don't know much about cooking. I'm not very good at that. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, You're think, just picking it up being with Chad. That's I just right. Stuff. Yeah. Just watch. He well, knows his way around the kitchen. I, I have a theory about cooking. It should never take longer to cook it than it does to eat it. Mm. See, mm. that's the thing, though. Think that's about tough. that, though, because you spend a lot of time as a cook or a sous chef or executive chef, or whatever, and I, I'm not trained culinary, Robin, but... You do spend a lot of time in there, and you put yeah. a lot into it. And then all of a sudden, you put it out on that table, it's gone. and it's like Cousin Eddie in Christmas Vacation. He's like, I don't know about the cat, Clark, but I'm sure enjoying it. People are just <laughs> scarfing it down, right? But that's good. I don't even really eat. As like, long as they eat it. Yeah. Don't it, turn up their noses at it. Yeah, and that's the thing about wild game is that they're like, oh, my God, this is good. What is it? This tastes like beef. They think it's mm -hmm. beef. And then you're like, oh, that's buffalo or, or that's deer. And or they're like trying to spit it speckle out. Speckle belly. Yeah, and they're trying to spit it out all of a sudden. You're like, no, you yeah. can't do that now. You've already said that it was awesome. John, we're going to end it with you. This has been an awesome podcast because here's what we're going to say. Les is going to turn 81 in February, a month from now. John, you just turned 91. Correct. Don't ask me how old I am. I know how old you are. You just turned 37, John. John, good work. Um, Thank you. <laughs> 91 and 81. 90 plus 80 is 170 plus 2 is 172 years of life on earth. You have been hunting ducks since you were 12. So 81 minus 10 is 71 minus. So you've been hunting ducks since you were 68. You've been hunting ducks since you were six Seven. so you're 91 so this is your 84th 84th or 85th waterfowl season yeah if you think about it in perspective of what you two have seen you and i haven't really seen much right you just started waterfowl yeah. hunting. i've been waterfowl hunting since 1997 i was 26 or 27 years old 97 or 98 and i, I haven't been doing it too that long either but to think about what you two have seen what you two have eaten, what you two have experienced, the places you've traveled, and here we are in freaking Wyoming. Out of all places in the world, we're in Wyoming. Yeah. Torrington, Wyoming. Torrington, Wyoming. How, how neat is that to you, Mr. John, that this little town, like literally this is what you call a kind of a flyover state, you know, like this is a state that not a lot of people come to to visit like New York City or San Francisco mm -hmm. or New Orleans or Miami. This is Wyoming. Like, how cool is it that we're meeting here and we're sitting up here on a Friday night talking about waterfowl hunting? Well, it's it's extremely cool that also four people are having a lengthy, diverse conversation with never a moment to stop and think what they're going to say. It's coming from <laughs> the heart. You know, and Les says, gee, I've enjoyed the dog work aspect of hunting and 
Robin says, I've enjoyed starting from scratch and being able to hold my own in the field. And for me to say, gosh, I'm as excited about the hunt tomorrow as I was the first time I went on one. And I, I always tell myself, gosh, I hope we have a good day. And then you find out, even if it doesn't always show up in the bag, it's better than a day in the office, you know. And uh, This is uh, Chad's office. <laughs> kind of my office. <laughs> yeah, this, it's nice. And you do a wonderful job in uh, uh, really selling and exposing the great outdoors to a hell of a lot of people. And I think your efforts on that are very commendable. And I've commented before that I think one of the things that... Uh, makes your shows and your presentation so desirable is the fact that you have something for everybody and you don't say look now uh, we're not going to talk hunting unless you know everything you should know about it i'm not going to talk down to you you make it a natural phenomenon and you've got a very good explanation as to why you like it we've been talking about it here without a pause because we love to talk about it and you're the facilitator of that movement and indirectly and then again directly you play an important role in solidifying the value of hunting to humanity today and you're saying look if you haven't explored this you're missing a heck of a good time and you show that it isn't something with tunnel vision where unless you want to call ducks and you want to shoot ducks, there's no place for you here. You say, hey, look, I've got rock stars. I've got UFC champions. I've got business people. I've got people from all walks of life. Wives. Wives. Wives, sure, you bet. Ex-wives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we know all about that all stuff. All looking yeah. for the next one. But it, it's been well, a lot Well, thank you, John. That means a lot. Well, uh, it is the truth. As I've told you before, you have a, a natural amenity and, and really strong, strong, I guess I'm going to have to call them personality traits mm -hmm. that are just a natural for you. You don't have to rehearse your act. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. And... It was difficult for me to figure out the word that I wanted to use for a minute because it's very diverse, but you're damn good at everything you do, and I predict good success for you in the future, and keep up the good work. And lastly, thanks so much for including, I think I speak for all of us, to be here sharing this time with you. How can you say, well, we had a bad trip to Wyoming because there weren't too many birds. This is a big part of the trip right here. It wasn't right neat. It was nice. And yeah. there are a lot of birds. That's right. But this was awesome. John, that was very nice of you to say thank you. Robin, but, do you feel the same way? I sure do. <laughs> I of course. <laughs> I had to put her Will on you the cook spot. tomorrow night, too? Uh, yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing Mama Dale's duck out of the provider cookbook. Mama Dale. Mama Dale's. That is a uh, recipe from a lady that her son, her son works in the outdoor industry and um, Paulo is an awesome duck hunter. He's a great fly fisherman. 
unbelievable fly fisherman, an awesome duck hunter, awesome speckle belly caller. And his mom perfected this. They're an Italian family and they perfected this recipe. It's in the provider cookbook and it's, God, it is so good. So Where is he located? Um, he, he lives in <laughs> Reno, but he hunts a lot in the, in the Sacramento Delta and the Butte Sink and the Chico Valley and the, all over the rice country. And then he works for um, some different companies that specialize in cold weather gear. But his mom is an unbelievable wild game chef. Just she does ravioli. She can do gnocchi. Mm. She can do any minist- her minestrone. Minestrone is unbelievable. Um, I actually have another friend in that same area that his mom is um, Vietnamese, and she's going to do a duck pho soup. Pho mm, or pho. We like pho. So, so it's yeah. my favorite food right now. Sushi yeah. and pho. I love that pho. Yeah, I we like it, too. I like the way you say it. Pho. Uh, so I think that's the correct pronunciation. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, she's going to teach me, because I can't get the broth right. Oh. I suck at the broth. Isn't it made of pork? It's got, or? yeah, it's got, it's got, you, 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 you know, you cook down the pork and you, there's all this, you know, you just the mixture of the herbs and the mixture of the onions. And I can't get it right. Mine sucks. It might as well just be tea water, dirty water. Like it's not even close to what a fuzz supposed to be. So she's going to teach me that and then put like medium rare duck, you know, mm. just like some freaking slices of duck steak out across. It's going to be unbelievable. Cause my favorite pho is rare steak with tendon. I love tendon. It's like mm. eating candy. It's not the most <laughs> healthy stuff, but beef tendon is unbelievable. And the way that the Vietnamese prepare it is awesome. So she's going to teach me that. But anyway, Paulo, that whole area down there is enriched. We talked about it today. California has a ton to offer. And the culinary part that I've learned in that area of California, north of Napa, north of the Bay Area, is unbelievable. Very so that's what we're going to cook tomorrow. I have one other culinary question. Uh, you talked about uh, when you made the stroganoff at uh, Mitch's in Kansas, Mitch's place. You called it something else. You didn't call it stroganoff. See if you can remember that. You gave it another pronunciation. You said, this is not stroganoff. It's It's stroganoff. Stroganoff? Stroganoff. What do they say? I'm trying to remember that one. That slipped by me. But you gave it a different name. Stroganoff. I did? Yes. As a matter of fact, I might look at We one have of to our, go back and watch the, the episode. Yeah, when you were talking to Drake, the little fellow no, he was there. was so cute. And, yeah. And you put that big just, uh, bowl of it in front of Drake. Him. Oh, I said something to him. And then you said something to me about it. Now, this is not stroganoff. This is, and I'll. We'll You're going to have to remind me. I hope I wasn't talking smack because no, i can no. think of some smart ass terms no, no, that I would no, say no. right now not to a little boy no i would never say i love drake i remember when i was eating pizza with him his grandpa oh. mitch's dad owns the big cheese there in wellington kansas oh. and i've had so many great times with his dad drake's a little stud he's done some photo shoots with us he's been on the show oh. he's been in the blind with us yeah, he's very he's intelligent yeah. we'll do this again tomorrow the foul life podcast less nesbitt Mr. and Mrs. John and Robin LaMonico, straight out of Wyoming, Nebraska line, Wyobraska Outfitters, JJ, a.k.a. Jason, his dad, Mike Randolph. Thank you all so much for rolling out the red carpet and having us in this part of the country. Snow-covered country, black ice country. It was like four degrees this morning, warmed up, had a sonam. What would you call it? What came through at like 1030? Uh, not Scirocco, Chinook. Chinook came Chinook. through. The warm winds came through here. Brought it up to, they said about 40, but there's no way. I was cold all day. It's going to be about 21 for the low tomorrow with a 45-degree high. 
It's going to be some geese dying. You're supposed to win tomorrow? Yeah, 20 mile an hour wind. So there's going to be some ducks killed tomorrow. We got to get some ducks for dinner oh, tomorrow. Yeah, we need Quack. them for Dales. dinner. John, what are the name of your books? Passions Continued and uh, A Hunter's Lifetime. The Hunting Lifetime, John J. LaMonica. And they're awesome. They are great picture books, but great stories. I think it's unbelievable. The legacy, that's what we do, taxidermy and photography. It's not about instant gratification. It's not about getting a like on Instagram. It's more than that. I have my mom, who was born in the 50s, and her entire house, her log cabin is inundated with picture frames on the walls. Bookcases full of picture albums. I made a, a and Les will tell you this, I've made a promise to myself that I print 500 pictures every two weeks off of my phone to put into leather-bound photo albums. Oh, because I like that. nobody looks at my pictures on my phone. Mm -hmm. I can't find the pictures I want to find. Yeah, so now people true. come over and they open these books and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it's like conversation piece. It's memories. My daughter, Lisa, can look at it. And it, 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 it brings validation to this life of the travels and the experiences and the friendships and the stories and everything that we encounter on it. So... I've made a promise to myself. I'm going to keep printing them out and all the pictures we took today and yesterday. And I think that's a great idea. And I, and I'm going to, and after I'm done with my phone, I'm getting my mom's phone and uh -huh. then I'm getting my brother's phone. And I'm then will you all. erase them? Well, oh. they're on the cloud. Okay. I mean, right. I mean, there's a bunch of them on there. I'd want to erase the, cloud. <laughs> the clouds up there. <laughs> I need to that's get a good out. idea. We ought to get back to, to yeah. scrapbooking had, and leather on, 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 uh, photo albums. On Christmas dinner, we had some people come that weren't immediate family and I watched them. They're, they're hunting friends of mine, three of them, boyfriend, girlfriend, and another male friend. And the first thing they did for the first 40 minutes was go up and down my mom's hallways. Oh, yeah. Chad, is that you? Who's that? Is that your dad? Who's this black guy? Cecil. He raised us. That was my dad's dad. My dad was raised by a black man because my dad's dad died on my dad's 24th birthday. So my dad, mm -hmm. through his 20s and 30s, was raised by this black man of being his mentor. I guess raised isn't the right word because he was an adult. But this man from Oklahoma, Cecil, who moved to Richmond, California, around Oakland, came my dad's dad pretty much. Mm -hmm. And he took over as our grandpa. So he was in every picture, every baseball game, every mm -hmm. hunting trip, every basketball game. So people are like, who in the hell is that black guy in all these pictures? And I'm like, that's Cecil. He was our guy. He died at 93 years old, wow. two and a half years ago. And he became one of our, you know, one of our biggest influences. So anyway, we're getting back to that of this life is important and you got to have that to pass down. And it's not done mm -hmm. through in social media and instant gratification. It's done through conversation and looking at somebody in the eyes and talking to them and understanding what conversing is and how to have a, a, a really in-depth talk or conversation. And we're getting away from that because of instant messaging and text messaging. And we think it's okay just to text our mom hey happy birthday mom love you that's not okay it's not okay no matter who you are it's not okay i'm not on a soapbox less but you got to take the time to and you can't break up with someone with a text you have to actually what makes you look why do you look at me when you say that <laughs> yeah oh I'm i don't not, know i'm not I'm gonna not get broken fingers. up with nobody's breaking up with me robin <laughs> we got to get back to the basics but yeah that's a good way to do it just hey i'm out i'm breaking up with you you can't break up over text no you can't do uh. that no, I don't know anyone that does that. <laughs> well, I bet you I've met some people that do that. Chad Belding, John LaMonaco, Robin LaMonaco, Les Nesbitt, The Foul Eye Podcast. Thank you for supporting the partners and sponsors that support us. Flask Cap, thank you very much. Wild Brassica Outfitters. And last but not least, tonight's episode of The Foul Eye Podcast was brought to you by our friends at Safari Club International, SCI. We are going to have another 
podcast in the next 48 hours with Les Nesbitt and John LaMonaco, both life members of Safari Club International. They have been all over the world. They know exactly what SCI is doing to preserve hunters' rights. They are first for hunters. They are behind the scenes on Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., state legislature, all over the world. They are fighting for different hunters' rights, whether it's black bears in California, mountain lions in California, bringing African safari um, trophies into the state of California, whether it's squirrel hunting in Alabama, duck hunting in Arkansas, sheep hunting in Alaska, Safari Club International is putting hunters first and fighting for our rights every day behind the scenes so we cannot take that for granted. So thank you to Mr. Laird Hammerlin, President and CEO of Safari Club International, Ben Cassidy, the entire crew in Washington, D.C., Tucson, Arizona, all of their offices all over the country. Thank you, Safari Club International. We're looking forward to the Safari Club International convention las vegas nevada january 19th through the 22nd we will be there hopefully we see you all there i'm chad belding for all of my guests tonight this is 2am logic the song is called my foul life thank you all so much for listening Bye.